Hello and welcome to At Home With, a podcast from the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts and their clients. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with interesting people from across the world about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Night Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today we're back for season two and I'm so excited to introduce you to our incredible first guest. In this episode, I'm joined by Scott Durkin, President and Chief Operating Officer at Douglas Elliman, Night Frank's exclusive residential partner in the US. Scott and I had a hugely insightful and interesting conversation about his beginnings in the hotel industry in New York, why he needs to escape the city for catharsis every now and again, and why he believes that listening is the key ingredient for success in property. Scott has been an industry leader for nearly three decades and is a driving force behind globally recognised brokerage Douglas Elliman's ranking as the largest independent residential real estate firm in the US. Scott previously spent 26 years at the Corcoran Group, climbing the ladder to become their Chief Operating Officer and Senior Managing Director of the Chelsea Flatiron Office. Alongside his hugely successful property career, Scott is also an avid equestrian and is a regular amateur competitor in the world of dressage. Scott, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Thank you, Becky. It's great to speak with you. How are you doing today? How are things over in New York at the moment, especially with the world still in some sort of strange place of flux and coming in and out of lockdown? How have things been for you recently? Well, we're just coming out of, I heard Howard Lorber, our chairman, say the other day that we were in a temporary coma in New York. And it seems to have, uh, we've awakened and um, we're getting back to uh, bringing New York back to the forefront. We've been um, in COVID for about six months now and our state run by our governor has literally been shut down for quite a while. And especially in the densely populated areas like New York, we haven't been able to transact business uh, we recently just started showing property again, but the the guidelines and, and the rules are so strict that it's been quite an adjustment for us. But it, it's coming back. We've seen jumps in our sales from June to July, from July to August. So we're very happy with what's happening. Uh, and we're, we're, we know that New York is so resilient and this will not be something that will cripple it, bring it to its knees. So um, we're getting back. Um, our corporate headquarters next week after our national holiday and uh, we'll be reopening then and uh, we're very we're very excited to get back to work. Mm, Definitely yeah it sounds like a very optimistic story and an optimistic take on what's going on at the moment and how did you find the experience of of being in lockdown and obviously it was so extreme in New York what was that like for you? Well I was fortunate. Um, my husband and I have a country house two hours outside of New York, which many people do have and many didn't, but many people have. And we were able to leave on Friday the 13th, not knowing we wouldn't be back. I have not set foot in New York City since then. So it was quite um, a surprise when on that following Monday, we were told that we were shut down, the city was shut down, the state was shut down, and everyone had to stay at home. Um, so it was it was a big surprise for us not to be able to go back. Mm, yeah, and have you been, did you say that you've not been back to New York since? I have not been back to, the, to Manhattan since then. I will be going back this coming Tuesday night. Gosh, how do you feel about going back? Well, I think we all have learned how to shelter in place. We all have learned how to use the PPE uh, to help uh, not spread our own germs and, and receive others. 
and uh, it's sort of de rigueur right now t- in terms of how we're operating our daily lives. But I think, um, <clears throat> you know, we'll, it, it will change dramatically. A, a, a colleague of mine posted a shot last night in the evening rush hour on the subway train, and she was the only one on the train. Every seat was empty. So I think um, I'm not going to rush to re- take public transportation. I think I'll do a lot of walking. So it takes me about 45 minutes to walk from my apartment to the office, or I'll take a city bike, um, <clears throat> which we have that in the city. I think there'll be some adjustments. And I think um, New Yorkers are huggers. That will be an, an adjustment for all of us. Not We want to just hug each other and welcome each other back. Working from home is a challenge. It's much harder than working in the office. Um, someone said the other day, working from home is overrated. And I agree, it's been a a real challenge to uh, get it all in in one day because every single hour is booked, as you know, I'm sure. (laughs) Definitely. It is. It's a strange adjustment period and it's just completely altering the way that your your life was before and you're thinking about things in ways that you've never had to think about. Exactly on the hugging point, you'd never think about just, oh, I'll just give that person a hug. And now it's, oh, can I give them a hug? It's that weird, weird middle ground that we're in now. And in terms of the the market itself, you said that the the market's been picking up, mm-hmm. picking up traction. Do you think that that buyers now and people who are looking at property in New York are going to be taking a very different approach? Do you think there's going to be a change in in what people are looking for when they look at property in New York now? Yes, I think that what happens many times, and I've been in the business for thirty years now, and this is the fourth major uh, upheaval in our market. And the, on the other side of the recovery of, of whatever happens, may it may be 9-11, it could be the mortgage crisis, it could be the financial crisis, it could be COVID. Generally, uh, what we've seen historically is that it's been a buyer's market. And, and yet again, we're there again, and it is a buyer's market. So buyers are feeling very uh, powerful right now in the, in the, in the idea that they now have control of the market and that everything is negotiable. And so we're seeing a lot of activity in our our resales as well as our new property division. I was speaking to Susan DeFranca yesterday, who's our CEO of our development marketing division, and they are as busy as last August. And now it's obviously September, but they ha- they are really getting an uptick. People are feeling that you know, there's a silver lining in every bit of bad news that comes out of New York. When you hear all of this, the real tried and true New Yorker or the investor takes all of this information and and, and says, hey, I, I, I'm ready to invest. I can get some good deals now. There's negotiability. And I think we're seeing two-digit negotiability right now, some upwards of 10 to 14% off the asking prices. So buyers are grabbing that. And and what's helping fuel all of this is that the banks have lowered their rates dramatically, and you can get a a fixed mortgage for 3% for 30 years right now. And we call that very cheap money. Money is very cheap to borrow right now. Mm, That's so interesting. And that's definitely something that we'll go on to talk about later on in our conversation when we touch on New York a little bit more generally. But I'd like to begin the conversation by taking things back to the start and finding out what it was that was the driving force behind you choosing a career in property? Was this always the vision for you or did you ever have any other alternative careers in mind? Well, at the time, the earth was cooling. <laughs> and um, as, as uh, I'll reference Howard Lorber again, who was 
is very funny when he says that no one goes to school to become a real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> and now to be a, a real estate agent or, or an estate agent, it, it's, it's really a career path. When I did it, I was having a career path with Four Seasons Hotels in New York at the Pierre. I was the assistant manager of the property. And I, I thought I was going to be a famous modern dancer when I came out of college, but that didn't happen. I knew right away that I wasn't going to be that. And um, I was a shy actor, and that never works. So uh, in my career in the hotel industry, and that was seven years, I, I, I was involved in a real estate transaction, and I was watching all of the players in the transaction, and I, I noticed how the agents were treating the clients. And um, I thought, wow, imagine if you treated them in a wonderful way and, and respected them and, and didn't... At that time, the stereotypical real estate agent had their hand out and they had a terrible reputation and people would avoid them or they would use them in many ways because they were really aggressive. <clears throat> and I, I just thought, wow, I, I think this is a lucrative career move. And, um, you know, I had seen that one commission was like a year's salary for some people in my, my hotel and, and including myself. And I thought, let me, let me try this. And so I did. And I, I got my sales license and uh, the rest is history. And I, I sold for another six or seven years. And then uh, I was lucky enough to run into Barbara Corcoran at one of our company events we played volleyball in the swimming pool and then, you know, my career took off with her. Amazing. And you said that you started off doing doing modern dance. What was it about modern dance that you decided, actually, no, this isn't for me? You did your, because I read that you, you did a degree in yeah. it. And so it's quite a, quite a commitment to do a whole degree in something and then decide to change your mind. Well, now that I'm old, er, <laughs> um, uh, it's, age is a number to me, but I think to be brutally honest, there weren't any books. <laughs> and men back then could get a dance scholarship because there were no men in dance and and you, if you could carry someone across the stage uh you could um you could become a you know a performer so for me it was it was um you know my early life i my father was a policeman and i worked on a dairy farm up in the mountains of new york state so I didn't know anything about living in the big city. So for me, it was a way out of um, a rural life. And uh, so I just grabbed onto it. I had no aspirations of, you know, becoming Paul Taylor or Mikhail Baryshnikov. Or, I, I just, it just happened. It just happened. It was one of those things where I just, it got me out of me. It got me out of my small town, got me into New York. I suppose there is a little bit of almost a, a correlation there between because I think in in real estate you do have to be quite performative and I suppose there's probably you probably use these skills almost subliminally throughout what you're doing now and when you were on the more sales side of things there's always that little bit of performance that goes into a sales role. No, you hit the nail on the head. I think I say real estate is like theater every single day every time the door opens it's it's showtime and I'm not saying it's a, it's a life of being um completely um, not a phony, but it, it's just it, it, being a great salesperson, you have to have a great big personality and you have to be likable. And I think it has a lot to do with the way an actor might 
might um, hone his craft or her craft and also how they need to get their own roles and, and, and jobs. And it's, it all is aligned so similarly. And I think that's what was really what made me fall in love with it as well. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's a theater in its own. And, and you mentioned that when you first, when you were working at the hotel and you saw the agents come in and you saw that their approach wasn't particularly friendly, let's say towards, towards their clients, did that inspire you when you got into it to take a very different approach to how you dealt with people? Yes, absolutely. I thought, oh, wow, I'm, I'm just, I'm a bright ray of sunshine. Let me try this. (laughs) Of course, you, as you get into your career and and the career of selling real estate, um, you know, sometimes being nice is a, is is perceived as a sign of weakness. So you have to sort of marry the two, and um, you can't go around opening doors all day. You have to figure out a way to close deals and to to sell property. But I think yes, I think that what I saw was um, the aggressiveness and the the lack of respect for the client, which really, I mean that that was what my career at the time was all about respecting the client, which for us was the hotel guest and the world traveler and that ultra high net worth traveler because we were at the most expensive hotel in New York. So I thought that um, my combination of that and, and, and bringing it into real estate would, would be successful at such a young age. I think I was I was 29 at the time. Yeah, and I suppose as well, and you're in those really early days of your career as well, you're a little bit more, you're more willing to try different things and say, okay, well, I've seen somebody else do it like that, but let's try and put my own spin on it. Whereas if you've been in the industry for a few years or you've started from being in that industry from as your first job, you haven't necessarily got that experience that says, oh, something could work differently. Do you think having that seven years in the hotel industry gave you a good grounding to get into real estate and apply your own approach to it? Absolutely, because what we in in hotel management and, and guest relations and all of that, you're anticipating needs of a client well well ahead of their arrival. So uh, to have that uh, innate ability to do that and then trans transferring it to real estate is really wonderful because many times agents don't they don't. Um, hone in on on what their clients' needs really are, and they waste a lot of time showing them property that's not appropriate for them. And uh, so they waste a lot of time, and and the client really feels that they weren't listened to. So I think having this hotel piece of it and the hotel management, the training for Four Seasons, the anticipation that you you, that builds up before the client arrives is what you you take with you to real estate and they have a better experience. Mm. It's interesting. I When I started, I'd say 85% of people in real estate were women. Um, and that's changed dramatically. So I had a lot of, um, you know, uh, middle, uh, middle-aged women, mothers, housewives, kitchen sink brokers that we called them that I learned from. And let's not forget a, what historically, especially in New York, these women had raised a family. The children were off in college and then they went on to start a career in real estate. So these people knew how to manage a life and how, how to take care of people and how to get things done. And that expression, if you need, you need to get something done, ask a busy person. So I had, you know, a room full of women 
when I walked in and there were two guys and, 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 you know, 40 women and, uh, you know, it, I couldn't have asked for anything better. Mm, that's so interesting because in the UK, it's a completely different picture. It's such a, a male dominated industry. And it's a really interesting perspective there to see that it's actually women who maybe later on in their lives who have gone into the industry. Did you have more female mentors? And did you think that actually having women rather than men as mentors actually served you better? Oh, without question. Women share so much more because they're, they're, they're quite maternal in a way, especially if they've raised a family that they, they deep down want you to succeed. So they will share everything they know. And um, they're just incredible that way. Where men are, I don't know, being male, you know, we're not as demonstrative as it, as it relates to sharing fears or sharing, um, it just doesn't happen naturally. The, the sharing of emotions, it's just not in, it's just not in, in us. So yeah, I was there. Um, you know, I became a coffee boy for for the ladies, and I would go out and get them lunch and bring it back, and they would take me on all the appointments, and it just it was just a wonderful way of of learning the industry. Mm, yeah, that's amazing. I think, as, and it's a particularly important point almost to note that actually there is that whole thing around men and not being expressive of their emotions. And while it is getting better, I think it's it's definitely something that I think that is ignored per se in the sales industry. It's not necessarily people don't talk about the emotional side of it. They talk about getting getting a deal, and it's right. not necessarily about the connection you make with somebody. It's getting them to like you, but actually, it's something that I feel like women, speaking as a woman, do quite well is that we want to know about other people and we want to make that connection. So I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in those early years of your career, you said you kind of started off getting coffee for people and going on appointments. What would you say were the biggest lessons that you learned? Oh, one of the biggest, and um, and I picked this up from my father being a detective and a cop um, is is to listen um, that was one of the best best things is, is one one colleague used to say open the door and shut your mouth or you know you don't have to point that there's the stove or there's the you know this is the the living room they, they know what room it is so I mean it's very it sounds very basic but it was sort of like I always they taught me that um just open the door and, and let the let the home draw them in and make them fall in love with it. You can't talk someone into buying something, just no matter what you do. I don't care who you are. Um, it just doesn't happen. They have to, It's an emotional response. Uh, even if you're an investor, I, I believe, I, you can't just take that away. You've got to fall in love with something, and it has to stay with you after you've left. It has to bring you back for the second time. And I think um, having so many women showing me how this was, because, you know, let's not forget, New York is a, a very outspoken place. And and they I remember some of my colleagues, the women would be like, they would open the door and this is the expression. What's not to love? You know, <laughs> very typical. Is this not gorgeous? You know, a couple of, of hello, you know, a couple of statements like that. And then they would let the client um, just ramble through the home of course if it was a a huge home and it needed a a guide for the initial showing that would be different but for the most part people can figure out where everything is and um so yeah a lot of listening 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 
and anticipation, which came from my hotel training. That's a really great point. And I think a lot of what comes up on this podcast, because we've we've done a series now and everybody said that it was all about the power of listening is it's the thing. I think some people said that it's you have you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And actually it's about finding out what the client wants and answering their questions rather than being there and telling them what they want to hear because they're not going to have that connection with the property they're not going to have it whether or not you you tell them this this and this or whether you don't and so to somebody who is beginning their property career Mm -hmm. looking at say what you've done and thinks oh my goodness I would love to do something similar what advice would you give them would it be to listen or is there something else that you would tell them well I would I would ask them to find someone that they could mentor that they really feel that would help them get their feet wet because your initial entry into it uh, and we have so many television programs they often give a false sense that it's a a very glamorous life um it can be of course absolutely but it's it's the glamorous life of your client it's not your glamorous life and um with very few exceptions perhaps maybe frederick who has frederick and john and the eckling gomes and and the altman brothers I'm talking of there within our our company and in New York, um, we have uh, television uh, stars from the reality television shows that are in our company as real estate agents. That you know that happens, but that's not. We don't we don't take our client to a swanky bar and and have you know have uh, vegetable juice smoothies and and make offers on <laughs> on apartments and houses people are so busy we rarely get them to see the listing and then they're off and and we're negotiating it you know via zoom or or text so it you just have to find someone that you really want to emulate and you that is well respected uh, don't go for the sharks because you don't want to act like a shark um, you'll use that that particular um, personality trait when you need to but you don't need to use it much you can keep it in your arsenal but don't 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 think you need to emulate someone on tv who's screaming at their customer that that never happens <laughs> yeah you do, people are, i suppose do you get a lot of people now coming to you seeing seeing things like selling sunset or or million yes. dollar listing and they're just like i want to do this <laughs> right you know it, and it's it's the unreality of the reality television um, but it, you know, it, it definitely helps if, if you have that pizzazz and the look and the, you can command a room. I mean, I've been with Frederick before and John and Julia from who runs the company <clears throat> when they walk into a room, all the heads turn and you, you can't buy that. You have to have something that's attracting people and, and they've worked so hard to get where they are. And, um, I'd never discount any of, of their contribution and they're so ro- well respected. But I think if you're just starting out, <clears throat> your family and your friends and your sphere of influence will be the most important feeders to your business initially, especially in the States. And I'm not, sh- I know we do it differently than you do somewhat. <clears throat> and you, you tend, you can assign them something and they're, it's a different relationship because you, <clears throat> excuse me, the, Knight Frank has the client already in many cases, where for us, the agent brings the client in and it becomes part of their wheelhouse. So it's a little different, but you have to let your whole sphere know that this is your your path in life right now. And But you need to find a mentor that's going to show you the ropes because it's 
it's not easy. It's not easy at all. It's a very, very hard life, I think. And that's something I wanted to touch on as well, actually, because as if I'm right in saying, everyone who works in real estate in America is, are you formally self-employed? So as much as you're part of a broker brokerage, you're actually self-employed. Yes, right, exactly. You're 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 an independent. Yeah, and can that be quite an isolating experience? Well, it can if you're not with a large firm like ours. So as much as we say you're an independent contractor at Douglas Elliman, you're part of an enormous independent contractor family and you don't feel like you're out there on your own by any means. But if you don't have the relationship with a large brokerage, sometimes it can be very isolating and many people end up leaving the business because they, they chose the wrong firm and they, they weren't surrounding themselves with the the right agents or the right company. And um, yes, I happen to have gone through that in my first six months. I was with a small firm and I walked away from it and went right back to uh, hotels. But I turned right around and came right back to real estate. But it was a moment I was like, oh, this is just so lonely. And it's just not for me. Uh, but I turned that around and um, got back in. But it, it there are moments where you just want to give it up if, if you're just batting zero. So that's why it's important to plan it out. You need a business plan. It's just not a fly by your seat of your pants life. And you, you can't wake up at noon and say, oh, let me go into the office now and see what's going on. Yeah. It's all about that, that discipline. It's very structured. Yeah. And, and to go back on to the point about, about talking about the differences between the UK property market and the, the US property market. And obviously we've touched on everyone being, being self-employed, but on a day-to-day reality basis, what does it mean to be self-employed, but within a large brokerage? What's that support system look like? And what's the difference therefore between being a completely self-employed agent who does everything for themselves or being part of a large brokerage? A lot of the differences is, is like, it's based on our, for United States labor law. So for you to be self-employed, you can't, we can't tell you what to do because then that would be an employee relationship. So a lot of that is just, it's, it's, it's wording and it's, it's, it's a law, but to, to have a license, the, the license is individual, but the license must be held by a, a broker. So if you're an agent in the States, your license needs to be associated with a broker. So that because your first license is a, is a sales agent, unless you're an attorney, so you're a couple of years of, of of work is required to get your broker's license. So in just a couple of years, you can be your own broker and not associate with anyone. So I'm a broker, so I could go out and have Scott Durkin Real Estate ten minutes from now. It's that easy. Um, so I think it's just a designation, and it just it clearly defines the relationship. Um, you need a license to sell, but you, you, you are your independent self. So, um, we provide all the services and that's why it's important to have a large firm like Knight Frank or Douglas Elliman that has the structure and the infrastructure to support you growing your business. And I think, um, so it, it makes you, it, you don't feel like you're, you're, you're an independent contractor at our company. And I know, for instance, at your company, your, your agent's your estate agents are employees. So it's, that's a different relationship. And sometimes that is a relationship that might work better because you have longevity. Whereas our, our independent agents, they don't make any money unless they make money. 
and, and they pay their own health insurance. They they have to they have to earn money. Every deal is a commission. There's no advance and there's no salary. Mm, so can it feel quite like a, a quite an insecure career path at sometimes? It can, especially if you're the you know if you sell something today, it won't close for seventy five days, and and it might be delayed if it's a new piece of property that's not finished being built, and all of a sudden it's one hundred and twenty days. And you haven't. You, it, it's very hard to financially lay out your plan of of surviving if you don't have something in the bank to help you survive. Because there there will be moments of dryness, and your closings are backed up. So, uh, but there are a lot of companies out there now that are coming forward and helping the agents manage their their receivables, and uh, they're advancing the money and and allowing them to take some money up front knowing that this particular closing is coming down the road. So it's not as bad as it used to be, but you would be, you know, there will be moments where you, you just don't have your closing and you might ha have a deal. If there's a, if there's a dip in the market and all of a sudden you're not selling it, it can become very upsetting. And sometimes people leave the business because of that. So would you say that you need to be highly motivated and disciplined in order to succeed in the industry? Do you think you have to be the sort of person who who thrives off that almost insecurity and gets almost excited by it rather than made to feel anxious and worrying about all the next things? Do you have, think you have to be a very specific kind of person to succeed? I believe that, yes, if you were to open a book, you would point to that person. However, <clears throat> there are the people that are completely unfocused, unorganized, that have huge careers and they you wonder how they do it because they're just teetering on 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 just getting through the day and it, it's amazing and i think that's what attracts a lot of people to our industry in the states because you can jump in and out of it and you are your own boss in a way and um it it can really can be there are wonderful highs and there are enormous lows so I think that um, it's hard to find the middle ground unless you're highly disciplined. Our most successful agents are highly disciplined. They're up at 5 a.m. They have a structure of how their day goes, and they have a team that's, that's waiting in the wings for when they arrive to get the day started. If you don't have that structure, it's very hard to be successful. And now that you're the COO and president at Douglas Element, is it a very different lifestyle to the one you were living when you were purely a broker? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's structured in a way of a corporate structure, but I get to vicariously live within the sales agent structure because I'm with them a lot and I, I um, mentor them, I coach them, I also go with them on listing presentations. So I'm, I'm very in touch with the industry and it's nice that I was an agent so I know what it's like to live their life. I've been in their shoes. So I know it's important to them. And so I can provide that. It's important to know that their best asset they have is their ability to sell. So we have to make their home life, home business life, really strong and be there to show them all the support and to give them that hug or to or pr pr provide something that makes their day go a little bit better. So it's more of a kind of almost support network. Absolutely, yeah. And so why did you decide to to move from the more direct sales side into the more operations side of the business? What was the impetus behind that decision? I was able to 
have uh, a, um, a a moment in a swimming pool where Barbara Corcoran came up to me and said that she wanted me to work side by side with her. So I, I grabbed it, the chance and uh, she was not as big as she is now. And, and she's now an enormous celebrity. But at the time she was the company was growing so big that she needed a a second banana. We had been meeting a lot at company events, and we would always end up in the, be in the corner talking. And so she came up to me and, while we were playing volleyball in the pool and said, when I inhale, you exhale, and I can't find that, I can't buy that, I need you to work with me, and let's meet on Monday. And so that was the, the beginning of an, an amazing relationship. That's amazing. I love that saying of when you inhale, I exhale. That's just, I thought that really sums up what a good working relationship should be. We actually moved in together to a conference room in an office and we shared a big table for all those years. And she would always say, she said, you're not a threat to me. You're smarter than I am, but I don't feel threatened by you. And I, I can never, you know, let that go. I feel like that I found my soulmate in business. So I was so lucky in a way that I could I could never find that, and I I I completely give her credit for helping be my mentor and and making sure that I was included in everything. She wasn't your typical CEO that thinks they've built the entire company on their own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And so you and you were at the Corcoran Group for twenty five years, and then you moved to to DE. Why did you decide to make the move? Was it quite a difficult decision to make, considering you had that really amazing relationship with with Barbara? Um, it wasn't difficult because Barbara ended up selling the company, so it had it had changed dramatically over the last few years that I'd been there, and it become it was highly profitable, and and the parent company that owned it had sort of stripped it of its specialness and its unique DNA that everyone had. And Barbara had, was long gone. So uh, for me, I was just waiting for the right move. And, and Dottie came forward and she was sort of like, for me, a new Barbara. And um, same position of, of having built her company and needing help to bring it into the next century. So with Ken Haber, Howard Lorber, and Dottie, and um, we we forged that relationship, and it was a much easier move for me, and it seemed like a natural move. I didn't uh, have any regrets. I wasn't. I had a wonderful life at Corcoran, but it was time to move on for Chapter Two, and I did it. And and since you've been at DE, you've been responsible for hugely expanding the firm. So beyond New York and and into California and different elements of California, aside from just just LA. I mean, you've you've expanded in California from fifty agents to almost six hundred, from something I've read. Was that expansion effort always at the heart of what you wanted to do? Did you go into the business thinking, I really want to expand and make this company as as big as possible, or was that something that almost happened organically? And as you came into the business, you saw it had that opportunity for growth and decided to take it down that route? Well, I think, again, this we have an incredible management team at, at Douglas Element. So at the time that I came on board, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen Kotler had started uh, uh, working in our Beverly Hills office. And there was an opportunity to grow the company by acquiring a firm called TELUS. Uh, so I always believe that timing is everything. And at the time, they were ready for acquisition and we were similar as I get, I use, I do overuse the DNA piece, but their, 
their agents were very much like our agents and they were very much to me like Corcoran agents. So um, Stephen had identified this and and uh, we all agreed and Howard agreed and, and I agreed that overnight we would go from just Beverly Hills and a little of Malibu to, you know, San Diego up to, up to Carmel. So it, it allowed us to have 22 offices along the coast of California practically overnight. And we knew that we could we could really elementize them very quickly. So, yeah, it, it made sense that the the planets were in the right positions, and we we went we went for it. Um, so, yeah, we we have this motto internally that we go where our customers are. So, if you notice our our crumb line for the company, we have California, we have Colorado, we've got Florida, New York, Texas, uh, Massachusetts. And, and Westchester and Connecticut. So we tend to, where our client has their second or third home, we're there. So we can accommodate their needs. And as we said earlier, the agent becomes uh, their advisor and, and can help them through, with all of their homes all over the country because we, we do have the connectivity of the element agent being in all of those luxury markets. And is that a rare thing for American real estate? Is it rare to have a company that's in so many areas and so that you can have that really connected client, client relationship across the, the states? It's not rare if they're a franchise, but we're not. It's rare to have um, company-owned offices in all over as we have. Usually it's it's a franchise where the actual brokerage within the city buys into the franchise, whether it be a Berkshire Hathaway or a Colwell Banker or a Sotheby's. But ours are company owned. Yes, it is different. It's One would think it would be hard to manage, but um, we have wonderful leadership in all of those markets and they uh, uh, all have a flavor of what it takes. I always believe real estate is local, so you have to be very in tuned with what's happening in the local market. You can't you can't look at it from thirty thousand feet and just think that one size fits all. So we're lucky to have great leaders in all of those regions that have lived there and that that have the right agents that sell there. Um, I think it's at the higher end. You know, our average price is one million eight across the country. So that gives you a different agent, whereas. Um, agents that do a lot of what we call sides uh, might work on the lower end and they might be more independent and less reliant on a relationship with the company and wanting all, see, we, we do a lot of events at, at Douglas Solomon. And as I said, the connectivity between the agents all across the country is really important, similar to what Knight Frank does, the, the conference and the way they are also uniquely tied and tied together and so it's it's different it's the franchises tend to be less collegial than than company-owned places i find yeah and it's all about as you said that that local knowledge and when a client comes to you they want to be able to know that you have the expert knowledge of an area rather than just a big firm where everybody kind of knows it's like almost a little bit of knowledge about everywhere so you actually have that specific area knowledge and to go into that in a little bit more detail you've spent most of your career if not all of your career in in new york and so why was it that you decided to stay in new york have you ever had any desire to be anywhere else or is it just always new york for you well i think it gets to a point where it is what it is in a way that, that, that it's still New York. It'll always be New York. But this particular position and, and company 
allows me to travel every month, which keeps it fresh for me. I think, yes, you would think, oh, why am I staying in New York? I don't have to. But it, it's my home base. There's a light on in the window in, a, in many ways because I'm traveling so much. And that's what keeps the job fresh and exciting for me to go to California, to go to Texas, Colorado, Florida, and have a complete working knowledge of all the markets. It's it's wonderful. I couldn't ask for a better position and also to get to go to the Knight Frank annual conference in England or or we went to Dubai last year with a group of agents. You know, that that I'm not stuck in New York, you know. I've done I've done New York and it's it's an amazing place and it's where we have our biggest market and and we make our most money, but it's, you know, I, I, I have the best of both worlds. That's so exciting. And I think, yeah, having that opportunity to travel, I think, is is when you ask most people about their career, that's that's what they want. But to hone in again a little bit more on on New York. So somebody was looking to buy in New York or had never been before or just was interested in the city but didn't know a huge amount. What's the big thing that you think sells New York? What is it that people are looking for when they come to the city? And what is it that you, you love so much about the city? I think that there couldn't be a place any more diverse um, although I often think that London and New York are so alike, um, I think every few blocks New York changes. It's a, it's a tapestry that is ever changing, and I think that it, there's excitement there. I think that people are also extremely welcoming and friendly. Uh, it, it gets a bad rap sometimes that it's a dangerous city. It's any city that's densely populated has a certain amount of of crime and danger, but this, I think. Um, we have so many phenomenal neighborhoods, and our city's grown so much beyond Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. Um, and now the Bronx is having some some gentrification and growth. It's an amazing island and and area that uh, has just such a diverse lifestyle. All are welcome. I think our museums are amazing. <clears throat> Excuse me, the restaurants. Hopefully, when they reopen, will be amazing again. It's just a life that. No matter who you are, you can make make it home. You can be whoever you want. No one cares what you look like when you leave your apartment. Um, you might be upset that they're not giving you all the attention you want because you're so outrageous. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> um, it's like punk hair. Remember, in the I'm not sure if you were around in the '80s, but uh, it's so vertical that it's it, it's just a, a magical place and. I don't know. It just keeps drawing me back. I've never, I've been there since 1980. It's gritty, but I think uh, if you need to, if it's it's a place where you can become anything you want and there are no barriers. Yeah, it feels like a city with, with a lot of opportunity. I went for the first time last summer. It was my, my 21st birthday present to go to New York and just completely fell in love with the city. It just And the thing is, we stayed in, we stayed in Brooklyn and we were going in and out of the city and it was just the complete variation between different parts of the city. No part of it felt the same and each part felt like they had, it had its own character. Yes. I think that's what, kind of looking at it from an external perspective, that's what people think of when they think of New York is that it is so multifaceted. It is. You'll be walking and all of a sudden you turn the corner and you're like, oh my God, I never knew this existed. I want this, I want to live here. Like, especially like in Brooklyn. There's sections of Brooklyn that are absolutely breathtaking. And uh, often people, I'd rather be in Brooklyn looking back at the cityscape. It's so magical than being in Manhattan looking out at Brooklyn. You know, it, there, there's so many ways to sort of live and and things that become important. It, it really makes you take stock of what you have and what's important. 
because you are somewhat limited on how you can live here because it, it is extremely expensive. But uh, you know, you can find anything here as you can in London, I think. Yeah, and I suppose being working in property is almost the best way to see the city and the best way to get a grip of it, isn't it? Yes. I think people say it about London, it's that and as an agent, you know an area in such detail and it's unlike any other knowledge that you'd have, even just as a Londoner or a New Yorker, you, you really get to know a city. And so for you, where would you say is your, it's a cliche question, but when you go, when you're in New York, where's the place you gravitate towards? Where's the place you always want to be? Um, for me, I think it would be... Um, probably the West Village and Chelsea. And I do live in Chelsea, so I have special affinity to Chelsea. Uh, I also love, uh, you know, believe it or not, near work now, it's becoming very posh. You know, we're at 56th and Madison, and Douglas Solomon has just taken the residences at the Waldorf Astoria, which is a couple of blocks over onto Park Avenue. And Midtown Manhattan is becoming really wonderful. So it, it changes in New York. If you want something that's going to bring you back to the New York you once knew, if you've lived here a long time, you, you jumped, you go down to the West Village because it's it's a landmark. It doesn't change. Um, but if you want something that's edgier, you go out to you know, eat Brooklyn and you continue to move out through Brooklyn and, and uh, um, it changes dramatically there as well. But I do like the West side of the city more than, for me, it's much more casual for me. The Park Avenue is beautiful, but for me, I, I'm not gravitate. I don't gravitate towards that. I think that is a different lifestyle. It's more formal. Yeah, and you said that you your your home is in Chelsea. What was it that made you decide to choose your the home you're currently living in? What was it about your apartment or your house that you you fell in love with? Um, it's an old pre-war building. So I, for me, I love the. Uh, what sold us was the bathroom. It had a separate tub and a separate shower, and it was as big as a walk-in closet. So, yeah, you never know what's in it. Had a courtyard of of gardens. We live at London Terrace Gardens, and it um, it was just perfect. It just it checked all the boxes, and it was close to the tunnel, which gets us out of the city, which gets us up to our weekend home in the Catskills, where I've been since March third. <laughs> Mm, yeah, that was something I was going to ask about, actually. And is it for you, is it is important to have that that country escape that that paradise away from the city? Because I read as well that you're you're an extremely keen dressage rider and equestrian. And so is it really important for you to have that countryside escape outside of New York? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't know. We my husband and I uh, made this decision to come up here. Uh, right after 9-11, because we were living in Soho when it happened, and we had we had nowhere to go, and some friends had said, oh, just come up for dinner and spend, spend the weekend, and um, that was two hours out of the city, and we ended up buying their house. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that Monday after dinner, because they were, they, were mo- they were saying we're splitting up our land and we're selling this house, and it's going on the market next week, and we were like, no, it's not. We'll buy it. So we bought it on Monday. Yeah. Amazing. So it was fate. And so for you is is having that is it almost catharsis to be outside of the city and to be to be riding. It is and and you know, you, you can't take a phone call on a horse. You can, but I don't suggest it. So it's the only way to completely check out of, of life for, for a forty five minute lesson. Um and so also to connect with a thirteen hundred pound animal in a way that you, you can't 
otherwise do in, in your personal life and your business life, it, it helps me become very disciplined in my work life. And it also, it, it sort of helps me um, bring out subtleties instead of using a hammer, maybe a velvet whip in a way. Um, as you know, dressage is based on um, 500 year old war horses. And they were able to, during wars, turn their horses around and take off without making a single movement. You, you didn't know how they did it. And um, so that's, that's the subtlety of, of the discipline of this particular equestrian sport that fascinates me. And it also ties also me back to dance to ballet and modern uh, because so many of the moves are very similar, but the horse does them. Mm, yeah, it's only cyclical there. Yeah, uh, it was a natural return to some type of performing art. Mm, and I love that point, actually, about what you were saying about about it being a really good opportunity to switch off, because I mean, I've ridden horses since uh, for as long as I can remember. And I, I completely agree. It's that when I'm on a horse, I think about absolutely nothing else. I've never experienced anything like it because you have to be so concentrated because obviously you're sitting on on another living creature. And so it's in order to to make sure that you don't injure yourself at the very bare minimum, you do have to have that complete focus on what you're doing. And so it is an amazing way to switch off. Exactly. No, and it, 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 it's for me. It's the important piece of the recharge of your your existence. Every you must recharge every couple of days or weeks or what. You can't keep going. And I think our capacity to remember things has been uh, has been taxed by our constant communication via text or or email or Zoom or. And we're exhausting our brains. I don't know how we can continue to feed our brains and have any retention if you don't take a rest. We're we're over we're overloading our bodies more than we ever thought we would. Mm, absolutely. And is that something you emphasize as a manager? Do you tell your your agents and the people that you work with to also have that downtime and to make sure that they're not exhausting themselves by working every minute of every day? Absolutely. And you know, it's it's always the case though, whenever you tell them that an agent, the minute an agent leaves for a holiday, the phone rings and someone wants to sell their home. The minute they decide to take time off, their business starts, starts to wake up. It's, <laughs> it's always but, the way. Yeah. And I think it is. And it's one of those industries where you can't necessarily switch off in the way that somebody who was doing something, a more kind of mundane office job that didn't require necessarily a client relationship. You can't really turn off because if your client wants something, you have to be there for them. Right. And you never, I've never, but once probably in 20 years since we've been able to do it, I've never put an out of office on. Never. Really? In this, in the sales industry, you really can't. You you know that you'll lose business because someone got a, a reply saying you were away uh, or the limited access to email. When has that ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> absolutely no definitely and do you think that that actually has had do you think that's had any impact on your on your mental health not being able to to always switch off always kind of having it on in the background do you think that's had an impact on your mental stability at all yes if anyone said no I, I wouldn't believe them yeah I mean you you yeah you look at it before you even get out of bed now right 
Oh yeah, it's the same with social media. It's it's always just constant activity. It's you can't completely switch off. Even if I mean, I I remember I woke up the other night and and I got to about two a.m. and I was supposed to be scheduling a podcast to go up and and I woke up at two a.m. and I was like, oh my goodness, I haven't scheduled this podcast. And I was like, I shouldn't be waking up at two a.m. with this this stress. But I think because everything's so digitized, you just exactly. can't switch off from it anymore. Yeah. And it's very dangerous, especially at that hour, because it, you go back to bed and then you will forget everything you did then. And then halfway through your day, you're like, oh, my God, that email came in and I didn't finish what I was supposed to. And like if someone sends me an email on the weekend, I will nine times out of 10 lose it, lose the email in the in the, the way it came in because I've gotten so many more. and. Um, you have to like Monday morning. Now I have to go through the weekend and make sure I've, I've responded to everyone because it's just a different, you know, I believe you need to take some downtime and um, it, it just can mess everything up, especially if you do tend to wake up or if you're also like you working in different time zones. Mm, yeah, definitely. That, that can definitely mess it up. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I feel like lockdown was a strange one because it simultaneously felt like, oh, it's it's a kind of weird life break because we can't socialize and do everything that we normally would. But then the communication just got so much more intense. So it actually ended up didn't being a break at all. It just got actually just made things a little more, more almost too connected, it seemed. Well, it is because everyone wants that every hour. It's like we let our Zooms go from the top of the hour to usually 38 minutes out and then you the, between 38 minutes and, the, and the, the the top of the hour or the bottom of the hour whatever it is you've got to you know eat or go to the restroom and then check all of your texts and all of your emails and then the next zoom comes on or the next conference call and it's so much harder now because then at the end of the day you've got to you've got to do everything you've from your last seven calls and then you're working into a 10 or 11 o'clock at night um it's exhausting <laughs> mm, it's not i don't think yeah it's ridiculous it's almost it's not sustainable but there's like how on earth do you get out of it it's just this is the new the new system now and everyone wants to be connected all of the time and i mean i could talk about this for hours i have so many thoughts on zoom but to bring it back onto the property um is there anything at the moment that you're working on or that douglas element have on their books or particular developments or projects that you're particularly excited about and would like to tell our listeners a little bit more about I was recently looking at all of the um, multimedia uh, pieces that we have for the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, as you know, that's one of the iconic hotels of the world. And for our company and Susan DeFranza and her team to, to have that assignment is, is one of the most important pieces of real estate in the world. And I, having had a career in hotels before real estate, uh, I, I mean, it's it's the piece de, de resistance. And I think that that would be the biggest dream to, to have an apartment there, to be able to live in the residences, which, you know, many of them were only reserved for dignitaries through the years, presidents and, and shahs. And, and to be in the residential portion of the tower there and to have an opportunity to buy you you could buy a one-bedroom apartment and, and live at the Waldorf for the rest of your life. You could buy a five-bedroom. But that is such such an amazing 
jewel in our crown. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. And and if anybody hasn't seen any of the imagery of the wall of his story, I'm going to put the link to it in our in the description of this episode because it, it is utterly incredible. And I mean, and I, I told I was speaking to my little sister when we we did the Instagram live about about 111 West 57th Street and. Mm. also about the Waldorf Astoria and I was telling my little sister and she was like that's Gossip Girl and I was like oh no and I say, it's, it's so many people have got different connections to it and it's it's hilarious that my my 18 year old sister's like but it's Gossip Girl <laughs> oh my god right <laughs> that's adorable And so to begin to wrap up every episode, we do a quick fire round just to kind of get your brain going again and discuss some little, some slightly different stuff. So the first question I ask is city or country? City. Classic or contemporary? Classic. Penthouse or townhouse? Townhouse. Call or email? Call. Office or working from home? Office. Please. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> um, right. Central Park or Prospect Park? Prospect Park. Walk or run? Walk. And finally, New York or the Hamptons? New York. So the final question that we ask everybody to round up the episode is, what does being a partner in property mean to you? As it relates to the, the client relationship, for, for us, the partner in property is the ultimate marriage you have with your client and you have with i mean i could separate it it's like nine frank and element we are partners in property um that association for us has 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 really helped us across the world and and with so much of what we do but then partners in pro a partner in property for the client would be let me just reference someone like uh alistair or edward demelli morgan um, Edward has an amazing pod, um, postings on Instagram of, of all of his properties. And um, he does that in such a way that he's an advisor to his clients. We've all become at the higher end and the ultra high net worth individuals, as well as the high, the high, high end property. We are the advisor now. So we are partnering with the client more than we ever had. It's not as, it's not a transaction anymore. That is something that the the experts do behind the scenes but the forefront now we are the advisor we are um we travel with the client now we we move at a moment's notice for the client and uh, we manage their whole portfolio so the partner in property is super important and i think it really separates the agents to the to the advisors i think you you have to know how to reach your client in so many different ways and um you're almost part of their family office. And I know you use that term a lot over there, but you are, and um, you are their partner in property. Mm, amazing. Thank you so much, Scott. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Oh, same here, Seki. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At Home With. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you shared this episode on social media, and please check out the show notes for more information. I'll be back next Wednesday with another exciting episode.